Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Someone asked me uh, why it is we're studying the minor prophets. You know, what led me to decide that we should, after preaching on Philippians, which is the epistle of joy, why we should spend so much time, 12 Sundays, three months, looking at a lot of doom and a lot of gloom. I just want to read to you as an example, Nahum chapter 3, verse 5, and 5 to 7, it says this, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? That's, that's a lot of doom and gloom. And this avenging, this wrathful God, it's not an uncommon description among these 12 minor prophets. God is a jealous God. And you see him going against uh, those who go against him pretty often with these 12 minor prophets, with these 12 books. It's definitely not something that would cause one to think, oh, happy, happy, joy, joyce. And it's honestly a little bit of an unexpected follow-up to the epistle of joy that we finished off a few months ago. Another thing is, as you read through these 12, it's easy to start thinking that all of them are a little bit repetitive. Uh, we, we looked at Obadiah a few weeks ago, uh, and it talked about judgment against Edom. Now, if you were to take Edom and replace it with Nineveh, which is the focus of this particular book, these two books, Obadiah and Nahum, they would seem pretty interchangeable. So why? Why did we decide to look at these minor prophets? Why do we take so much time on them? Twelve weeks, three months. And I'll tell you, it's because in the midst of the doom and the gloom and the repetition, there's hope. It's woven in, and sometimes it is hard to see it. If you read too fast, you will miss it. But there's hope in here. There's, There's a hope that is fulfilled in the redemptive redemptive act of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sake. Amanda Bencusen, uh, a professor at Calvin Seminary, and I mentioned her when we first started this series a few months back. She described the 12 this way. This is her quote. In this world gone very wrong, the prophets persistently describe a God who longs for his people to return to him and receive mercy. In spite of the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, there's hope in these 12 prophets. In spite of the fact that we are supposed to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God and typically don't, there's hope in these 12 books. In spite of the fact that we are called to be citizens of heaven, but more often than not, we act like citizens of the world, there's hope. See, God is just and God is love. God is fair and God is merciful. God is chesed. God is a loyal, consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, unrestrained, scandalous lover of his beloved. 
And in the midst of God's justice, which requires recompense for sin, which requires payment for evil, in the midst of that justice, God's grace and God's mercy shines. In the midst of all this, doom and gloom is the promise that he laid out from the Old Testament of a Savior that would bear the payment, that would pay the price for our sin. Jesus takes the tab so that we don't have to. Why did we decide to focus on the 12 for 12 weeks? Because, as I said, instead of a series about doom and gloom, I think that these 12 are about hope. And thus saith the Lord, which is the title that uh, Jonah, our worship director, came up with about this minor prophet series. Thus saith the Lord, you have hope, and your hope is this, that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you and I can be redeemed. This brings us to Nahum, the seventh of the 12 prophets that we're studying together. And I'll tell you that this particular book, it is dark. It is difficult to read, these three chapters. Just three chapters. They describe in graphic and gory detail what's going to happen or what did happen to Nineveh. But even interwoven on these pages is the very nature of God, is the beauty of our Savior, and is the hope for the beloved. And I'll show you. Let me start just with the name Nahum, or in Hebrew, Nahum. Nahum, it means consolation or comfort. It means to bring comfort. And then the first words of this particular book, verse 1, the first half, it says, an oracle concerning Nineveh. Now, I'll tell you, an oracle in Hebrew, the word is masa. And translation uh, is simple. It's a prophetic proclamation, which is what it says here, an oracle. Or it also can mean a burden, a heavy load that causes distress. And I've mentioned before, Hebrew is such an amazing, beautiful language in my mind. And this subtle wordplay that uh, Nahum is intentionally doing here in these first five words in Hebrew. The first five words in Hebrew is this, Masa Nineveh Seper Hazon Nahum. But you can see, if you think about it, Nahum or Nahum, the one who comforts, is here to share a prophetic word, Masa, that might be a burden, Masa, to Nahum, the comforter to carry, or it's a burden, masa, to those who are about to hear it, but the comforter, Nahum, bears it to bring hope. It's very poetic. It's also an oracle concerning Nineveh, and I was reading uh, somewhere, Nahum is basically Jonah part two, right? It's the sequel to the story of Jonah, a hundred or so years after Jonah had, with five very uninspiring words, brought the people of Israel to their knees before God. Over 100 years later, the people of Nineveh has so thoroughly turned their back, turned back to their evil and wretched ways that the judgment returns. And if Jonah could, I have a feeling that he would be like, I told you so. Why do we bother giving them a chance? And why take so long to bring down judgment? Over 100 years. We're going to come back to that question that Jonah asked at the end of today's message. And then we come to the start of the passage that asks Sarah to read. Thank you very much for reading that today, Sarah. Uh, we're not going to spend time diving into chapters 2 and 3. They really expand upon the concepts that are identified in chapter 1, the judgment that will come and the protection that God provides for his beloved. What I really want to do is just focus on chapter 1 and specifically verses 2 to 7. And we see in verse 2 and verse 3, we see Nahum or Nahum presenting the full nature of God 
to all those who will listen. And let me just read chapter 2 and part of verse 3 again. It says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Verse 2 says, God is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. And I'll say that these are not, at least in human terms, they are not nice words. Oh, actually, except uh, nowadays avenging kind of is, because, you know, avenging, Avengers, Marvel, Disney, all related. But I want to look at these three first words to see what it is that Nahum is intending to explain about God's character. And the first is this, God is jealous. There's a theologian, his name's Wayne Grudem. He wrote this. He said, divine jealousy is God continually seeking to protect his own honor. In other words, it's not, jealousy is not like me being jealous of Sarah's apartment, which is right here, or Adam's one-wheel skills, or Aaron's beautiful hair. Divine jealousy is a zeal or a zealousness for what is good and holy. J.I. Packer, he's another theologian, he wrote this about divine jealousy. He said, it is God's holiness reacting to evil in a way that is morally right and precious. It is a praiseworthy zeal on his part, on God's part, to preserve something supremely precious. God is perfect and has no sin, so jealousy in its divine form is also perfect and without sin. See, jealousy in human form is a feeling of resentment towards someone else's achievements and possessions because I want them. But divine jealousy, divine jealousy is a passionate desire for us to be who we were created to be, created in God's image to glorify God and enjoy being with Him forever. Said another way, God's jealousness leads to God's zealousness for us. That's divine jealousy. God is also avenging and wrathful, according to verse 2. It says, and I want to read to you from Romans chapter 12, verse 19 and 20. And Romans 12, 19 and 20 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This description of God's character is intended to bring the reader a sense of hope, especially in the context of this book. See, Nahum is writing to a a people that have been tortured and terrorized for decades, some for their entire lives. And so being told that God is avenging, being reminded that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, that the most powerful and the almighty is on my side and he's going to bring down judgment on those who are bringing me pain and suffering. For them it was hope because justice is going to come. But, and, and there's a but here, but God's vengeful nature, it is tempered with our response. See, we're told to leave the wrath to God and go love the enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If you're the one who's wronged you and traumatized you is thirsty, give them a drink. And I mentioned it a few weeks ago when we talked about the people of Nineveh and Jonah, the prophet, not our Jonah, and how Jonah's hatred for them 
made him run away. He just didn't want to give them any opportunity, any chance for redemption. But God is consistent in his instruction. Because his command to us is to lay down the burden of vengeance and to pick up the call of mercy. I'll tell you, this doesn't mean that we are to deny that we were hurt, that you were hurt, that you were wrong, that you were traumatized, not at all. It does not mean that justice will not be served. I'm not sure if it's going to be served on earth or when Christ returns, but justice will come. It doesn't mean that vengeance will not be brought down. But what it means is that the onus of that justice, the burden of that vengeance, the responsibility of that wrath is not on me or on you. It's on God alone. Leaving the vengeance to God, leaving the wrath of God to God, and bearing the burden of mercy and love, you know, it's not intended to be a weird way of getting revenge on those who wronged you, but it is a way of giving vengeance to the one to whom it belongs. But it's not an easy thing to do. But it's intended to allow you to take a breath, to pause, to allow yourself to love and to be loved by God, and to love and be loved by those God has brought into your life. And when I preached about Jonah, I told the story of my aunt who was taken captive as a sex slave by a Japanese soldier at gunpoint from my grandfather. I shared about my past hatred for that particular people group because of that history and that story. And my wife Suzette pointed out that I never actually finished one part of that story. So let me finish it and offer that as an example of this right now. See, the pain that was committed on my family, it, it, it is distant from me. So letting go of my desire for vengeance, picking up the call for mercy for the Japanese, doesn't seem like it should be a big deal because it wasn't a personal affront to me. But, and they didn't harm me personally, but letting that go, letting that hate go, even after my cousin and my grandfather were reunited, it took a long time. I wouldn't even buy like Japanese cars or things just because of my hatred for a long, long time. But leaving the vengeance to God, leaving the wrath of God to God, that's where I can honestly say I am now. I can say honestly that there's no angry, there's no hatred. There's only a desire to see the spirit-led transformation in the hearts of that group of people, of the Japanese. God is jealous. God is avenging. God is wrathful. But God also, if you continue on verse 3, is slow to anger and great in power. I want to look at these two characteristics as well. <clears throat> God is slow to anger. And I was looking at God's divine anger and that, what that means to understand it a bit more, and I learned an amazing thing. I don't know if you knew this, but did you know that the very first time that the Bible ever mentions God's anger, it wasn't at Adam or Eve or Cain, even though he was the first murderer. It wasn't even to the corrupt people that led God to flood the world and save Noah and his family alone. God's first mention of his divine and righteous anger was at Moses. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, this is what it says, but he, Moses, said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? 
I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. The very first mention of God getting angry was at Moses. And the response by God in his righteous anger was not to smote Moses, but to help him. God said, okay, you know what? I'm going to send Aaron to help you out. See, God's righteous and divine anger looks nothing like our anger. Human anger can result in protection in a positive way. We protect those we love when we get angry sometimes, or abuse, which is probably the more typical reaction folks are used to, are familiar with. Human anger is abusive. But divine anger, God's anger, is not like either of those. God's anger is an expression of justice. God's anger is a measured and a right response to the breaking of the covenant by his beloved. It's not volatile. It's not uncontrolled. It's not an explosion of emotion. It's not abusive violence. God's anger is good. And God's anger is slow. And this is exactly why it's slow. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, this is what it says. It says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God's righteous anger that will bring divine judgment is slow, in our minds at least, because God wants to give every one of his beloved a chance, a chance to turn back to him. In Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, this is what it says. Um, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. At the start of the message, I posed a question that Jonah might have asked if given the opportunity. Why bother giving the Ninevites a chance at all? Why take so long to bring down judgment? This is why. It's because God is slow to anger. God has and God will continue to put up with the betrayal of his beloved for a whole lot longer than is logical so that we might be afforded every opportunity to run back into his loving arms with genuine humility, no matter what. God's also great in power. Reading to you from uh, this description of God's power, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27 to 31, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. In Job, there's a uh, dialogue between Job and God um, where God starts asking Job questions that speaks to God's greatness in power. Asking, where were you when I did all these amazing, amazing things creating the world and the universe? 
And if you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 17, what you see there, here is that that same God, this God who, has great, who is great in power, it is Jesus Christ. It's described as Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. And he is before all things, in him all things hold together. God is a jealous, avenging, wrathful, slow to anger, great in power. This is our God. This was and is and will be his character forever because of this. Because, because he's jealous for me, because he will avenge those who have uh, striven to torment God's beloved, because he's slow to anger so that as many people as possible will become his beloved, because of these things, there is hope. In chapter 1, verse 7, this is the hope. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Our God is good all the time. Our God is strong all the time. Our God is with you and me all the time. And this is the promise. That though the moments of hurt and pain and loneliness and distance and isolation and whatever may feel overwhelming, all of this, God promises to be your stronghold. He promises to know you, to really know you, to really hurt from your pain, to really rejoice in your joy if we take refuge in him. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up on stage. Um, in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Nahum was quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, where he wrote this. Isaiah wrote, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Paul in Romans chapter 10 explains what the good news that Isaiah and Nahum were talking about, that our good God came down in the form of man, and this man, Jesus, his death and his resurrection on the cross was intended to fulfill God's justice so that we might receive God's mercy. Today we get to celebrate communion together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotb.life. God bless and have a great week.